Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, January 9th, 2018, and I'm your host, Arielle Taylor, with my co-host for the evening, Lavendar. Because our very distinguished guest has another commitment tonight, we'll be skipping the Starseed news to get right to his interview. And Anastasia will be back next week with the news. And before we get started, uh, we just want to let you know that we do have some spots still available for our upcoming Starseed quests to Arkansas. Uh, The first one is March 16 through 19, and the second one is May 18 through 21. That's for Pleiadian lineup. All you need to have is at least one galactic star marking on your astrological chart at 25, 26, or 27 degrees of any sign. This is a soul group reunion in the crystal capital of the world. So if you'd like more info, just write to crystals, that's plural, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-S, at starseedhotline.com for more details. We are so pleased to have a very accomplished and talented guest with us tonight, Mr. Paul Jeffrey Davids, who has a degree in psychology from Princeton University, is a noted producer, writer, and director in Los Angeles, mainly of television films that have been released by Showtime, such as Roswell, The UFO Cover-Up, and um, NBC Universal International. He's also written books including An Atheist in Heaven, The Ultimate Evidence for Life After Death, and four of Paul David's films are distributed worldwide by NBC Universal's International TV division, including Starry Night, The Sci-Fi Boys, Jesus in India, and Before We Say Goodbye. Information on all his films, including She Dances Alone, Timothy Leary's Dead, The Artist and the Shaman, The Life After Death Project, and his most recent film, Marilyn Monroe Declassified. All the information about these can be found at his website, which is Paul Davids, that's got an S on the end, P-A-U-L-D-A-V-I-D-S dot com. And information about his paintings can be found at pauldavids-artist.com. Paul is from Bethesda, Maryland, the son of a famous Georgetown University professor of American history, Dr. Jules Davids, who worked extensively with John F. Kennedy on the writing of Profiles in Courage, for which his father is credited in the preface, and who was a professor to Jacqueline Kennedy and later to Georgetown undergraduate Bill Clinton. Paul and his wife, Hollis Davids, co-wrote six Star Wars sequel novels for Lucasfilm and Bantam Books, including the award-winning Mission from Mount Yoda, plus The Glove of Darth Vader, The Lost City of the Jedi, Zorba the Hutt's Revenge, Queen of the Empire, and Prophets of the Dark Side. I just love those titles. The books sold millions of copies and were published in many languages. Paul's a member of the Writers Guild of America and Producers Guild of America, as well as being a magician member of the Magic Castle in Hollywood. He's an accomplished artist whose paintings are in galleries. And that is quite a list of accomplishments, so we are thrilled to have Mr. Davids with us tonight. So we are going to get right to this interview because we know that um, you have a time constraint this evening. So, uh, Paul, let me get your mic open and Lavendar's mic open. 
Okay, we are on go. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ariel. You know, as I listen to your uh, reading of my background, I think to myself, gee, I'd like to meet that guy sometime. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you've accomplished I, I've been living. I've been living inside... I've been living inside his skin my whole life. Uh, so uh, I haven't Anybody? let any grass I haven't let any grass grow uh, under my feet. Well, that's obvious. So Lavendar, you're set and ready to go? Ready to go. Okay, I did also want to say I I I wanted to say you can take uh, my expression about not letting grass grow under my feet as a as a double entendre, as a double meaning. I I kind of was taking that. <laughs> So uh, we're going to get underway uh, tonight with my new book, uh, Blowing America's Mind, which just came out and which I co-wrote with John Selby, right? Right. So so I'm so thrilled to have you uh, on the show. And, and Paul, I want you to know that I I finished your book, and I I just kind of had to stare at the ceiling for a little bit after I finished it because it was so explosive and and brought to mind so many things that I've known about all these years about MK Ultra, and uh, so as the author of this this wonderful book, start by telling us um, how it came to be and 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 why you decided to put it at this time. Well, uh, when John Selby and I were both uh, psychology majors at Princeton University. We both uh, enlisted in a program in deep hypnosis and LSD research at the New Jersey Neuropsychiatric Institute, which is in Skillman, uh, not far from Princeton uh, in New Jersey. And the adventures that we had there were really sort of like one flew over the cuckoo's nest uh, for real. It, it was a, a once-in-a-lifetime extraordinary thing to be part of, which had a good side and it had a dark side. Um, at the time, we were enticed because the uh, main psychiatrist who ran the program, Dr. Humphrey Osmond, was so famous for his work with psychedelics, and he invented the term psychedelic and had done research with uh, peyote and LSD. And we were also interested in hypnosis, and that part of the program was run by Dr. Bernard Aronson. What we didn't know when we got involved, and our involvement lasted uh, over a year for uh, each one of us, with, with John Selby, I think maybe two years, we didn't know that the research was being funded by the CIA. We found that out many years later, that it was part of the CIA's MKUltra mind control research program. So uh, as to why we wrote the book, well, we started writing the book, Blowing America's Mind, uh, soon after... We had those experiences. Within a couple years uh, after departing from Princeton, we began to put it all down. But it took years. I mean, this is decades. Uh, It was so difficult to bring it all out. Because it involved hypnosis where there had been memory blockage, uh, we each had to help one another reconstruct what happened. And also, we... In order to use the real names of all the, uh, the researchers, the people involved, even the president of Princeton University, well, the decades passed, and, and they're all deceased now. So between the fact that we felt the coast is clear now to talk about this CIA mind control program and, and our being touched by it in our own lives, 
between that and the fact that there's a great resurgence of interest in the psychedelics and use of the psychedelics now by young people, uh, it's back. LSD is back, and so are some of the others, like mushrooms and peyote. Um, we thought it was important to let it out there, let everybody see what it is. And we called it blowing America's mind because that's what the CIA was doing to America then with all of this research at so many institutions and so many secret, top-secret projects that the public was never supposed to find out about. Hello? Uh, hi, did I lose you? Oh, I wanted to. I'm sorry. I, w I wanted to ask you if um, you've seen any men in black, or anybody's been tracking you since you came out with this book. Are they asking you not to do it, or having any kind of trouble with it? We haven't seen uh, repercussions from the book yet, but it's just uh, fresh out. Oh, you know, okay. It, uh, Amazon Amazon uh, made it available. Uh, I think it was barely a month ago. Okay. Uh, the uh, you know we did it both as a printed book, and blowing America's mind is also you know available at Kindle and then all those other formats they have for 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 ebooks. But as far as um, pressure or what we've heard, um, there are people connected with Princeton University who are very sensitive about it. Um, obviously, we're painting a. Uh, a controversial picture of what happened. Now, this was a long time ago. This was Princeton was still not a co-ed school when this happened. This is the tail end of the 1960s, and the revelations of MK Ultra came at the tail end of the 1970s. So uh, we don't know yet uh, what the full repercussions will be of the fact that we've gone public with it now, but we certainly have put it out there. Um, and Levendar, one of the things I wanted to make clear to your listeners, it's not a, the kind of nonfiction book which, you know, there's a lot of nonfiction which is dry, which is almost textbook, which is sort of, which would be like a book that just sort of catalogs and reviews what happened in the MKUltra projects. It's not what this book is. And uh, the book comes from our personal experiences of having been part of it. And I found a great quote by author Thomas Wolfe, he wrote the electric Kool-Aid acid test about Ken Kesey. And Thomas Wolfe was trying to describe the purpose of his book and how it painted a picture of the life of the merry pranksters of, of, of Ken Kesey, who, who wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. What Tom Wolfe said was, uh, I have tried not only to tell what the pranksters did, but to recreate the mental atmosphere or subjective reality of it. I don't think their adventures can be understood without that. And that is just how I would describe Blowing America's Mind. We, 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 we were striving to recreate the mental atmosphere of what it was like to be a student in psychology at that time, being subjected to deep hypnosis exper experiments regularly, that were occasionally laced with uh, LSD microdosing. And well, yes, also as I read the book, I realized that you were taking me on a journey through your eyes of, of the yes. experiences that you had in your personal relationships and, that, and the it. things that you, know, you the went subjective, through, yeah, you know, the all the time uh, questioning. You know, you were questioning from day one what hypnosis was going to be 
the end result for you. So um, well, you know, it, it was it was enticing to us uh, at, at first. You know, as mental as a key to mental exploration, we wanted to see what it uh, could do. But we didn't realize that the doctors were interested in putting us through experiences that changed our sense of reality, much like psychedelic drugs do, or even as like a case of temporary schizophrenia. Because both the drugs, which they used to call psychotomimetics, now I think it's either psychedelic or internationally, under international law, they call them psychotropics, because they're all banned internationally. And, and, and in the United States now. Um, we, um, you know, we were, we were um, guinea pigs, really, as they were trying to determine how do you differentiate the effects of mental illness or schizophrenia or paranoia from the kind of uh, experiences that one has under psychedelic drugs which sort of, uh, they, take, they take down the filter that the brain has that filters out so much stimuli and so much from the unconscious and temporarily for a period of maybe eight or ten hours put you in a state where your consciousness has access to much more that's going on in your brain than you would normally ever be aware of. That that's why they're called psychedelic or mind manifesting. And as I said, Dr. Humphrey Osmond, in charge of our program, he came up with that uh, that term. He even turned on author Aldous Huxley with mescaline, uh, and then Huxley wrote the Doors of Perception, which was the first really comprehensive description of a mescaline uh, trip. But for us. The personal experience came first, although we've integrated the facts. We've got news articles from the time that exposed MKUltra. We've got uh, headlines, uh, quotes from various uh, magazines, and our epilogue kind of takes it into the present because our lives have gone in different directions, and we've gone very, very far from the light and the darkness that we experienced during those years we can look back at it now, and we can deal with all that material in a way we never could have when we were too close to it. I wanted to ask you about um, your talent, your genius. Do you think that by having these experiences that it's really opened up all the genius of creativity for you now and uh, since then? Well, well, thank you for the comment about genius. <laughs> I... I uh, yeah, I've done a lot of things, a lot of projects, and, 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 and I have had very specific talents since I was very young. Um, I think that, you know, Steve Jobs talked about this subject. Uh, Steve Jobs credited LSD with having opened up his mind in a way that helped him uh, with all of the technological achievements he made later on. I think that Steve Wozniak, you know, we're talking about inventor, personal computer, also indicated the same thing. For me, um, it did give me uh, a, sort of a sense of, uh, a, of freedom and diminished my fear of exploring lots of things in lots of different uh, directions, whether it was 
painting, or I'd always been involved in filmmaking uh, and the writing and all the rest of it. I think the main thing was that when I was in college, I was really afraid of proceeding with a creative career. Uh, I was never encouraged for that. It was always get yourself a stable job. You know, my parents went through the Depression. So, uh, and I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. Everybody, you know, is a teacher, they're a lawyer, they're a doctor, they're working for the government. But, you know, being a Hollywood filmmaker, no. You know, no, no, nobody except maybe I was a John Sayles from Baltimore, <laughs> but very few from the environment that I came from made the leap away from the safety and security of the back east establishment, came to the West Coast, and uh, set out to live, a, to have a creative profession. So it helped me break free, but at the same time, um, you know, I had some experiences of nightmares, uh, nightmare experiences from this, and some of them were deliberately induced by the doctors at the Institute. It was no picnic. It was, you know, that book, I Never Promised You a Rose Garden. Well, that's a good title, you know, sort of applied to this too, right? It, was, it wasn't any rose garden, but I think it's wonderful that John Selby and I remained close enough through, we're talking over 40 years here, to stick with this project, and after starting it, you know, over 40 years ago, saying in 2017, we're going to finish writing this this year, and we're going to publish, and we're going to have it out for 2018, it's exactly what we did. So let me ask you, you know, controlling other people's mind and actions through this subtle hypnotic techniques and mind-altering drugs will always be a temptation for those in power. How do you think we should protect our population against secret power-hungry plots to influence public opinion and behavior? It's a really tough question. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it goes to the heart of how the public is uh, influenced uh, today, which I think is pretty different than the way it was back then. I mean, I'm, I'm a child of the Vietnam War era. I, I, I remember when Kennedy was assassinated. You know, I... Lyndon Johnson was in power when, when we were uh, at Princeton. And the, the CIA was exploring mind control partially because they knew the Russians were. They knew that the North Koreans had explored uh, mind control uh, during the Korean War. There was that famous book written, The Manchurian Candidate, about a programmed assassin. Well, that book may have been fiction, but it was part of the MKUltra program. They called that Operation Artichoke. They were looking for ways to create a perfect assassin as another part of the program. It wasn't part of what I was involved in. But they were also looking for ways to break down personalities and to know whether these drugs could be used as truth serums and could they be used to make it so that soldiers on the battlefield would lay down their arms and wouldn't fight. I mean, they, they tested soldiers with LSD and found, you know, they wouldn't take orders. You know, they'd, they'd turn to the superior uh, officer and say, do it yourself. <laughs> so uh, uh, at that time, they were dealing with this mind control issue very much on a one-to-one on -a -one, uh, personal manipulation of understanding how far they could do, go with this with individual people. Today, I think it's all pretty, pretty different because it's much more mass 
sociology, we are massively influenced by the Internet, by our devices, by the kind of advertising they use today. It used to be called subliminal advertising, and they used to outlaw it. But uh, we are bombarded, and we are really manipulated and controlled through these devices by corporations that can use the devices to learn everything about us they want to know. It, it, it may be against the law for them to tap our cell phones and read our emails, but we don't know who's doing that. I mean, hackers can do it. We don't know just how exposed we are in everything we do today. In the old days, most of the time they'd have to send a wiretapper out to break into a house and plant a bug in the house if they wanted to listen in on a conversation. Today, you, you carry the spy device around in your pocket. Everybody does. The phones can be used to listen in on any aspect of your life. There is no privacy anymore. So how do we defend ourselves against this? I don't know that there is any defense against it. I think we've sacrificed privacy. Uh, we live in a world today where you can either say there are no secrets uh, in, among in the population or very, very few. There are secrets, of course. There's top security. There's uh, the things are classified. There are things we're never told. Um, but as far as uh, those in power reaching into our lives to know more about us, they they can they can do it. They've mastered that. My next question may be a little off topic, but maybe not. I, I've noticed that you have spent a lot of time working with the Roswell information. So yeah. after you've had all these experiences and, and, and all your genius started rising up in your body, were mm-hmm. you more susceptible to ET contact because of it? You, you know, Levendar, I think um, I, I may have been less susceptible. Um, I was very skeptical as I was uh, raised. Uh, you know, my, my parents didn't believe in anything, you know, paranormal aliens, flying saucers, none, none of that. And uh, I didn't much either. I mean, for me, I loved science fiction, but a lot of that was just science fiction to me uh, back then. It's the experiences I've had in my life. Uh, you know, it was personal experiences that led to my writing Blowing America's Mind. It was a personal experience that led to my uh, fighting to become, to, to get the Showtime movie Roswell made. I was executive producer and co-writer. It was a fight. Why did I take on that fight? Well, I had a UFO experience in broad daylight with my two children in 1987, and it was life-transforming. Just like, you know, these experiences from the 60s uh, were life-transforming. So um, I, I went into the UFO thing uh, kicking and screaming, resisting it all the way until I couldn't anymore, until, until the reality of it became so completely obvious to me. And then, because I was involved with the Roswell case, so many key people came to me with very valuable information. And, the, you know, and I'm, I'm including astronauts. After I made that movie, I was invited to uh, first to talk to Gordon Cooper, first to orbit uh, the Earth for the U.S., and then uh, I was invited to talk to Edgar Mitchell, who walked on the moon. 
they corroborated my my film. They corroborated the Roswell incident as having been alien and the cover up. The public has been absolutely deceived. It it it, it is a disgrace. It is all still top secret. There are some in in government that um, that oppose the secrecy on that, but the wall hasn't quite come down. We've seen some progress lately, by the way. We have had revealed to us through the New York Times and the Washington Post just in the last month or so about uh, a Pentagon uh, study of uh, unknown aerial objects uh, that they spent about uh, $22 million on, they said. And they released some gun camera footage uh, from military pilots, so you know, starting to confirm these things are here. So they're do you real. think they're doing this because they're getting ready to either announce disclosure or maybe they're going to do a, a, a Project Bluebeam uh, on us to, to make it a, a false flag type of operation? It's really hard to say, Lavendar. I think that this, I mean, a negative take on it would be this may be as much disclosure as we get. Um, oh. <laughs> you know, that they've, uh, they, I mean, you look at what's been released by the Washington Post and the New York Times, they're telling you it's real. They're telling you the Pentagon takes these uh, crafts seriously and that uh, they can't be identified. They do things that we can't duplicate with our own technology. So they've told us. But how many people are paying attention while they're in the middle of, you know, worrying about whether sports figures are uh, kneeling, you know, during the Star Spangled Banner? You know, in other words, the distractions out there. Are massive. I don't think they have any any public interest in really making it clear in the way that it would be a headline story. The way it would be a headline story if we suddenly broke out in another war. You know, I don't I don't see that. I mean, I, I hope there's a lot more disclosure and that there's declassification. I don't know who would precipitate it or what which, which president or what government. You know, it didn't happen under Clinton. And, and it didn't happen uh, under Obama, although Clinton was very interested. And as you said in your introduction about me, my father was professor to Bill Clinton at Georgetown University when Bill Clinton was an undergraduate there. And I had the good fortune to be able to have a personal connection to Bill Clinton uh, that went through a number of years before he was president, when he declared that he was running uh, I have correspondence back and forth with him, and then when he became president, uh, I was given you know sort of backdoor access as to how to get certain information that I had collected about the Roswell case to the president while he was in the White House. As a matter of fact, a book I provided to him was found in the Oval Office when he was under investigation. You know the impeachment thing. So uh, I also provided further information to him when Hillary Clinton was first running for president. Uh, trying to get the nomination instead of uh, Barack Obama. So uh, I've really been taking that seriously. Look, some major issues that face us. The extraterrestrial implications are one, and another is the mind control that we get into in such depth in blowing America's mind. The... uh, The fact is, people don't have an awareness 
today, I think, of the fact that the CIA ran a hundred, almost 150 mind control projects, many of them without ever getting permission from the people they were using as subjects. People were subjected to drugs that were being tested. There were 139 of them listed eventually. There were 86 different um, institutions involved, and I'm talking about colleges and universities. I'm talking about prisons. I'm talking about hospitals. I'm talking about research institutions like the New Jersey Neuropsychiatric Institute, where I was sucked in as a guinea pig. So um, we've got to know about this. I mean, the the public can't have, have a blind eye to the fact that this happened without permission, under conditions of top secrecy, with all the documents intended to have been burned and shredded, but they weren't. Uh, And I think the time is now to bring it back to everybody's attention. And you've got the book out there, Blowing America's Mind, 40 years in the writing, easy to get at Amazon. And I I ask for the support of your listeners in um, picking it up and going through the, uh, the experience that we offer you. We have a very awake audience, so I'm sure that you're going to have a boost in your in your sales after this show because we have so many people that through the years have talked to me about mind control and and MK Ultra. You know, I mean, it's like it's all over the place with us. You, you know, <laughs> so it's funny you're going to be quite pleased with with some of the uh, people that will start corresponding with you after they read your book. Good, good. Uh, well, we have a, a website, blowingamericasmind.com. You know, I wanted to follow up on what you just said, Lavendar, that, that there's the old expression about if, uh, if, a tree, if a tree falls in the forest and there was nobody there to hear it, did it really make any sound? <laughs> How would anybody know? And when you're an author putting out a book that you think has importance, the experience is a little bit the same. <clears throat> you know, you start, you make it available, there's a big silence, you, and you wait to see, are people going to find it? Are they going to discover it? Will they, you know, will they dive in and accept it? And we're at that stage now because this is so new. It's just been released. Well, I just certainly hope that you have the protection that you need from, from uh, the, the men in black type people that want to harass anybody that wants to investigate these kinds of things, and, and we, we know that we've experienced them through the years. I, I've had my yeah. share of them uh, through all these years. You know, you and I are about the same age. Yeah. You know, you I, know it's it, it's interesting, Lavendar, that um, as far as the men in black that you refer to, we have one of them on our cover. By the way, on the cover, when you see it, 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 <laughs> it it's two shirtless guys. Uh, looking very hippie and, and relaxed on a bench in the sunshine at Princeton, and I'm the guy at the left with the long hair. I don't look much like that anymore, but people have said they recognize me, and John Selby is sitting next to me, and behind us is a man in black. <laughs> you know, they're, they're over your shoulder, right? They're always watching. Yeah. And, I um, also wanted to ask you, have you had any information about other countries like Russia and, and uh, France and different people that have... Um, gone into the UFO movement more so than we have here in the States. Do you have any information new for us about any of the other countries that have done a lot of experiments and are now being revealed? Um, You're talking about the mind control experiments. Yes. Uh There have been books written. I think there was one about um, 
uh, paranormal experiments behind the Iron Curtain. I think that one of the things that they gravitated towards that interested them the most um, in all of this that related to hypnosis and those kinds of things and uh, use of the mind in unusual ways is remote viewing. Uh, the Russians were really intensely interested in remote viewing, and so was our CIA. And our CIA-funded uh, projects in remote viewing, uh, the ones in Stanford University, I think, became famous. And it's really interesting to me that pre former President Jimmy Carter, you know, he acknowledged this when he was asked about it and cited a case where remote viewing had been used to actually provide information about the location of a plane that had crashed somewhere in Africa where they had lost it, they couldn't find it, and a remote viewer told them where to look and they found it there. That was a validation of the fact that remote viewing is a real phenomena um, and that the government has used it, researched it, been interested in it, and may still be uh, today, as have been the Russians. So do you think that possibly, just possibly, that the next war that we're going to have is through mind control, through our through our uh, our leaders of countries. I mean, we're looking at this thing with Putin and, and Trump right now, and I'm going, it looks like mind control to me. <laughs> I mean, what else could it be? Well, well, in what sense do you mean that it looks like mind control? Well, well it's I, like I there's something very um, out of the norm with some kind of technology or some kind of mind, some kind of implant or something that's going on that no one seems to be able to track. It's like when I started seeing all this happening with Trump throughout the, you know, the entire time, I kept saying, nobody's got a handle on how, how implants play. If anybody ever got a handle on that, it, that would change the entire story. And I've been saying mm. that for a very long time. Maybe maybe so. I mean, I don't have any inf information that would clarify that. Um, and as far as implants go and what the technology is, you can research the use of implants in early mind control research. Um, I mean, they certainly attempted it on animals. They would use implants, and then they would attempt to cause certain behaviors. They would implant right into the brain they would target a part of the brain uh, so that they could get a certain response. Maybe to, just for example, maybe make a growling dog just suddenly uh, cower and lie down through an electronic stimulus, that kind of thing. But if, if they are experimenting now on um, implants on people, um, certainly brain implants or anything like that, it was certainly it's top secret. We don't know. What we do have strong hints of through the UFO abductees um, and, uh, and, and, and some of the work with uh, implants that have been surgically removed from, uh, from people who claim to have been abducted, either military abductions or they claim uh, alien abductions. You know, we know that there really are implants that have been pulled out of people that, that they shouldn't be there. You know, people show up with scar tissue. They don't remember when they got it. Why, why is it even there? Uh, the memories are blocked. Uh, so that happens, and, and it, because it's top secret, or, or there you know, could be the alien uh, connection to it. You know, we don't, we don't, that information hasn't been given to us except from people that say they've been victimized by it. Right. But we have to listen to that. 
You know, people aren't making these things up. When you have physical evidence that goes along with somebody's story, <clears throat> they're not making something up out of whole cloth. And, right. and, and some of those implants that have been surgically removed are, are physical evidence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I just wanted to bring it up because I've really been, I've been noticing and tracking for some time uh, the, the conditions of how uh, technology has kind of taken over uh, some of the people and some of the implant programs that, that I've been tracking for many years. So, mm-hmm. it, and, I, and I said on it, I, I'm not one to put it out there and, and be a, a whistleblower about it. In fact, I've got a lot of information that's still in the, in the bank vault that I probably will never bring out these <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> subjects because it would not, uh, would not benefit me to do that at this time. So, well, when you say wouldn't benefit at this time, that kind of reasoning is the very reason why we waited so long before publishing Blowing America's Mind. <laughs> you know, as I said, we waited well, until the people we're writing about were deceased. Then we, as I say, we waited until we thought the coast was clear. Yeah. We we they they may be monitoring this um, because certainly there are going to be people who are involved in these kinds of things professionally who are going to want to follow. You know what we're saying and what we've written, but well, I'm sure they're um, listening to us right now. I know they're, well, they're listening welcome. to us right now. They're, and, and they're, okay. they're welcome. They're welcome. I don't think there's anything being said anyone would be uh, ashamed of or have to hide. Yeah, it's called. You couldn't have me then. You can't have me now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, and we do refer in the book to a few. Uh, you call them men in black incidents. You know. Even that happened back then when we were part of the program. You know, when people show up, they won't say who they are they would never admit who they work for but they'll say some things that can be very disturbing and are sort of very cautionary watch your step watch what you say watch what you disclose okay should have had me when i cared okay (laughs) (laughs) well that's one of the benefits lavender the fact that both you and i have some years behind us right yes yes i know (laughs) you get to a point where you say uh you know if you live long so enough, what? you get you get to this point. That's for sure. You get, yeah, you develop a different kind of attitude. Right. right. Well, I noticed in the book that you um, your name was was Jeffrey and um, John's name was was Jonathan, and the other yeah. kid I can't remember his name. It was Hawk. Hawk. Yeah. Pac. What's happened to him? Where is he? We've lost track of Pac, and uh, the Pac that we write about was one of the subjects that preceded us in the research at the Institute, who um, became very disturbed by it and quit the program uh, and started bad-mouthing the Institute and urging everybody to quit and get out. Well, we were getting those vibrations from Pac at a time when um, certainly I was gung-ho to get into the program and be part of it, and I didn't want to hear what he had to say. And He's an extremely interesting character. Um, we have had to cast a shade of uh, fiction on his background. Uh, we've done that for the, some of the students we talk about in the book. You know, and the researchers, the, yeah, the professors, they, they were all real as they were. But, for example, um, with Pac, you're going to be reading about somebody whose parents were a mixture of Greek and, um, and Native American. Um, so there are aspects of Pac's background that don't correspond to the real, you know, the real character. Do you think and he's going to read this book and find you? Well, that'll be interesting, won't it? Yeah. I mean, 
people from way back when are finding me through Facebook and that kind of thing all the all the time. Um, so uh, I, I don't know. That's going to be interesting. The other interesting thing about this is I don't I, I, I don't want to forget the fact that the book is also a very sensitive and tender and um, an emotional roller coaster of a love story because uh, John Selby um, fell in love with a very interesting woman back then, um, an, an artist, and uh, their relationship is explored in the book. But one of the people, the key people at the Institute, really used the hypnosis to try to interfere with that relationship and manipulate it. Yeah, I really got upset when I was reading about that. I was like, oh, yeah. my goodness, he's really going to interfere with this relationship that way? Yeah, absolutely did. And and even the the, the fact that uh, the Institute hired her, they offered her a job so they could begin to get her under their control while they had him working there. Um, it's, you know, it's it's what happened. Well, and uh, the rip and, and tear and at the end of, of firing her and, you know, that whole explosive exit was really something yeah the book builds to an explosion uh it it it, it's all real and john selby and i had a break then in our relationship i wouldn't talk to him he wouldn't talk to me that went on for must have been a couple of years i didn't know where he was he left princeton he went to california fortunately he went to alan watts the writer great writer philosopher Psychotherapy East and West, one of Alan Watts' books, and, and Alan Watts helped John Selby sort of get himself back together again. John Selby did become a rather famous writer. He's written like 40 books. I mean, he's written popular psychology, philosophy, adventure stories, uh, PowerPoint for Warner Brothers, and so many books. Books, The Mindful Marijuana User, books about psychedelics, um, but nothing that exposes his real life like blowing America's mind does this is where he, he puts it all out there in, in, a, in a very sensitive and vulnerable way and I think there's great value in reading that also the fact that he and I were so different he was the, the cowboy from the west he grew up on a cattle ranch it's the cowboy coming to Princeton I mean this is almost like midnight cowboy John Voigt landing in New York uh, he was a fish out of water there. I was a professor's son, the son of a famous intellectual. Uh, our backgrounds couldn't have been more different, and yet we wrote the book together, we lived it together, and we became very close friends back then, but friends who um, had different experiences, different points of view, and 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 certainly had our share of arguments, let's put it that way. But don't you think that's, you know, it's best to have the the opposite points of view so that um, everything can come together in, in a great story, and that's what you've done. That That was one of the things that kept it alive for us through the years and made us always feel we had a great story to tell. Um, and do you think you're going to do the movie the now? Do you think you're going to do a movie about this? We're certainly going to try. I mean, we there there are meetings set up that will soon happen, and uh, maybe movie, maybe television series. We'll see. We'll see. 
we set these things in motion, and you never know which ones, uh, you know, become real. Yeah. Well, I'm so thrilled that you've you've been able to um, be on our show tonight and and share with us um, some of the insights to, to writing this book. Um, I would Rabbit, definitely you know, uh, encourage all of our listeners to uh, you know, w- get this book. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for that. I, uh, while we have um, a few minutes uh, uh, left, you know, maybe a little more than five minutes, but I would like to uh, share with your listeners who may not be completely familiar with my body of work some of the things I've done in recent years that are still very much being talked about and that probably would interest them. And uh, one of the recent uh, movies that I made in the last uh, several years well, 2013 it came out, The Life After Death Project, uh, which then became the book An Atheist in Heaven, which you talked about at the beginning. Um, and that, again, had to do with a personal experience that led me to accept the idea of spirit, life after death, communication with uh, the spirit world from them to us, um, because of things that happened with a great mentor uh, who nurtured my career, Forrest J. Ackerman, uh, who died at 92. And when he died, and he promised he'd drop me a line, he was an atheist, he, uh, but if I'm wrong, you know, if, I, if there's something afterwards, maybe I'll drop you a line. And that's where that adventure begins. So you can find the DVD. It's a two-DVD set of the Life After Death Project. And then three years later, Gary Schwartz and I wrote it into the book with all the scientific reports studying the evidence called An Atheist in Heaven. So that's one to keep in mind. And another, uh, very proud of the movie Jesus in India, which was a great adventure in India based on the book by Edward T. Martin called King of Travelers, Jesus' Lost Years in India. Um, the whole legend of the missing years of Christ. Where was he from age 12 or 13 to age 30? It's all skipped in the New Testament. Uh, it's mentioned in one sentence, uh, but, uh, but it never says where he was or what he was doing. And in India, there's been the longstanding belief that he was, uh, that he took the Silk Road to, to India, that he, he wasn't in the Holy Land during those years, and that he joined Hindus and Buddhists. So I wanted to see, is there any evidence for this at at all? It's a very cold case, but what trails can we follow? There's talks of ancient manuscripts that discuss this. Can we find the manuscripts? And we took a journey, and 4,000 miles through India, and also took me to the Vatican, and a biblical scholar, Elaine Pagels at Princeton University. It's like a 2,000-year-old mystery. And that, uh, that is still very much out there, Jesus in India. So, uh, But those are just a few of the films I've made. I've made 10 now, and at imdb.com you can see everything, the list of everything. And it starts with the Transformers cartoons, original Transformer cartoons. I was the production coordinator for Marvel. 79 half-hour episodes. Um, I'm credited on for that. And then the Star Wars books, as you mentioned, for Lucas. So it's been a wonderful roller coaster, Lavendar. And how about that was, genius? I mean, you can't doubt that genius has stepped into your body, okay? 
No well, doubt about I, that. I, I, I well, I'm so I happy that you chose to be with us this evening. And that I'd like to pass you over now to Ariel. Maybe she has something she would like to say. She is my co-host, and she's very interested in all these subject matters. And we do have about five more minutes before you have to go, but I'd like to give her the opportunity to speak with you. So, Thanks, Lavender. If you want to come and talk to us, Paul, about a project or a book or anything at all, we have a very awake audience. We'll be good star seeds that will get the information out as you want it out. So just let us know when we can help you, okay? Well, I'm happy to reach out to your awake audience, as you say, that are tuned in to things that are happening that so many people deny. So back to you, Ariel. Okay. Well, I have just been fascinated and really the <clears throat> the list of accomplishments is just mind-boggling that you have accomplished in your lifetime and we're just we're really really happy that you were having an opportunity to come and and talk to our audience um thank you in in the um <laughs> uh, you know a lot of um technologically savvy people and star seeds are huge you know star wars star trek fans um it's just it's just a, it's a common thread um and and I was just thrilled to see that you have been involved in that um although I haven't read the 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 books the sequels that you wrote but I love the titles <laughs> I just I love the titles and you know um yeah so I uh, think books are those books I think are almost like 20 25 years old now it was the early 1990s uh, that my wife and I were given a contract from Lucasfilm to write those books, and it came hot off the heels of my work on the Transformers film. Uh, not that, well, I did work on the cartoon, the first animated film, but the, the television series was my main work. But I had done all that work with the Transformers uh, robots, and uh, Lucasfilm was convinced that I could do a good job of handling R2-D2 and C-3PO. <laughs> and we did have an idea of six, six stories... Star Wars adventures on six different worlds, uh, each one with a different ecological disaster being created by the by the uh, the Empire. <laughs> so, so we we put that kind of uh, spin onto it that uh, Lucasfilm really appreciated, and and you know, it it brought some of those issues further to consciousness. In addition to being really fun adventures. Well, yeah, <clears throat> you know, any any adventure that kind of has a, a a a moral to it or a a lesson to be learned or something, uh, those I think are are really worthy, um, rather than just you know pure entertainment fantasy type of thing. But yeah, delivering the point about um, other planets having you know ecological disasters and how they can get past that. I love that. So yeah, that, um, that was that was the heart of it. And you know the the Marilyn Monroe declassified um, yes. project. I have had you know I've read some things and heard some things that uh, that she was really involved um, with with the UFO concept um, along with Dorothy Kilgallen. Yes. Yes. Is that it's covered in it's covered in the film. It's covered in you the know, film. You know, they were they were they, yeah, they were the, there's a CIA document that brought it up uh that uh made it into the public arena. Yeah, that film was my most recent. It was a, it's a year old now. It's Marilyn Monroe declassified and you can 
find it at Amazon Prime. Uh, there's a DVD as well. Another, it's another case that really fascinated me, and and the UFO um, angle on that was one of the things that, that drew me into many questions, because uh, Marilyn Monroe had access to certain classified information she wasn't supposed to have through her relationship with John F. Kennedy. Listen, I I really appreciate that we've taken this journey together and explored so many things, and I, I remind your your many listeners that uh, the, uh, the book is Blowing America's Mind. The subtitle uh, is a True Story of Princeton, CIA, Mind Control, LSD, and Zen. And they're all covered <laughs> in the book, which is very, a very, very personal uh, journey. Oh, and so BlowingAmericasMind.com. That's the website. Uh, you can reach me or my co-author through that site easily. Okay, and there is a um, on your main website, pauldavids.com, um, information about all your films, all your books, everything is. You can, it, yes, it's a little, can just it's a little out of date. It's a little out of date. It doesn't quite come up to the present. The one that deals with my art, pauldavids-artist.com, is filled with paintings. I mean, a couple hundred of them. Uh, but it also has sections that deal with my books, my films. You just have to go through the categories that you can click on, the portfolios, and you can see uh, uh, information and posters and covers of things uh, for pretty much everything there. And certainly if someone just went to Amazon and, and put your name in in the search bar. You know, that's everything not is, as good. Uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's, not not as, it's not as, you know, I, don't, I notice a lot of stuff does not come up. And the same thing with John Selby. Uh, maybe it's better for him when you search his name than uh, for me. It doesn't seem to be perfectly organized. But like I said, imdb.com, the uh, Internet Movie Database, that, when you find Paul Davids, that lists all the TV shows and all the movies. That doesn't list the books. So if you want to find the Star Wars books, use my name and Star Wars. That Those will come up. You'll see six titles. Or you put in... Google Paul Jeffrey Davids uh, or the art of Paul Jeffrey Davids. You'll see there have been five coffee table books of my art. I, uh, I'm looking at my watch and realizing, wow, yeah, I it's like we got to talk to someone in Canada. <laughs> yes, yes. So well, I know you're getting ready to do another radio show. So we just want to thank you so much for um, sharing your time and um, history with us. And we look forward to talking to you again anytime you have something that you want to let people know about, just let us know. I'd be happy to do that. And please stay in touch as you hear from some of your audience about their reaction to tonight. Thank you. Okay, great. So thank you so much, Paul, for being with us. And uh, from all of us, you're so welcome. Thank you. From all of us here at Starseed Radio Academy, we thank you for listening. And make sure you check out Paul's website, and um, his work, very impressive. So you take care, everyone, and we will talk to you and be with you next week. Until then, take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com. 